last week I did explore this uh, confluence inspired particularly by the birthday of Dr. King plus the events happening now, this transitional period we're in, explored the um, integration, the connection between the essence of our Buddhist practice and the life and work of Dr. King with particular pointing to the needs of our times. And I focus especially on the deep commonality of a very profound and even ambitious or audacious aspiration, which is to bring the qualities of wisdom and love and skillful action to every moment of experience and every part of our lives. I think one can find that very much in Buddhist practice. One can find that very much in the uh, approach of Dr. King. You know, and we always realize that aspiration imperfectly. But it's a very profound aspiration to have a kind of seamlessness of our lives. And so I explored the meaning of that last time. And I'll give a brief review of that uh, in beginning, because a number of you were not, were not here last time. But today, I want to particularly, on that basis, ask the question of what it means to live with integrity in our times and to have our sense of practice, our sense of carrying forth this aspiration, be manifest at this time in history and in the different parts of our lives. I'm going to, so I'm going to particularly focus today on, towards the second part of the talk, on the principle of integrity. So the current context in our world, there is a lot of uh, division, polarization. I'm speaking mostly just about our own country. Obviously, in the world, there are many forms of conflict. I don't know how many wars there are, but there are a lot of them. We know, you know, partly from more information, that there's uh, tremendous suffering. And in our society, we're in a, a very transitional and potentially very tumultuous period. It's already tumultuous, I think. And again, there are a lot of forces of division and uh, antagonism, lack of empathy, lack of heart, uh, apparent for, for a number of different groups. And the question is how to work with this, how to work with this as continuous with our practice. What is the meaning of, of our practice in these times? And I'm partly motivated by the birthday of Dr. King three days ago, the actual birthday, and then the holiday celebrated two days ago, partly motivated to see this um, valuable integration of his life and work with Buddhist practice. Again, and it could be uh, expanded in a number of ways. Uh, many people regard Dr. King 
as the greatest moral and spiritual figure of our country, country's history. Yeah, I, I agree with that assessment. And so how do, we, how do we understand their work and how they come together? So brief review of last time, I talked about the sort of what I call the shared heart of their approaches as being about this motivation to bring forth kindness, the kind heart, love, wisdom, awareness, moment by moment, and in all the parts of our lives. That aspiration in Buddhist language is called awakening. It's not being ruled by the habits of our conditioning. And we have these incredible tools and perspectives that helps us to transform our conditioning, uh, transform our habits, and presumably we're here because we've tested that out and found that both the approach and the methods work. Highly practical and highly, highly transformative. And yet I think it's helpful to remember that the aspiration, I use the words audacious, profound, ambitious, you know, to bring the kind heart into every situation. Some of us may not have entirely had the kind heart just in driving here. Anyone have a, I mean, I, I had at least one moment with a driver who was tailgating me. I particularly get a little reactive with tailgating at 60 miles an hour. I don't know, anyone else share that tendency? And, um, you know, I was not totally kind. Even though I have a professed practice of generosity while driving, which I um, lately have been forgetting. <laughs> Sometimes forgetting. But I remember, oh, but I, it usually comes back after a moment of reaction, you know, of tailgating for, for something else. And so it's a very, it's very ambitious. How do we bring this aspiration into all the moments of our lives? And again, there's, there's a kind of trajectory of practice. Uh, we don't try to do everything all at once. You know, typically the practice is we start with bringing these qualities into a protected environment. Maybe we come here to Spirit Rock, we have a half hour silent meditation at home, and we can think of those as training periods. And we train in awareness, we train in mindfulness, we train in wisdom, we train in activating the kind heart. And Dr. King actually had a very similar approach. One trains in nonviolence, and it's just as important to train. You don't get just thrust out into the difficult situation and say, here, manifest these qualities. He thought of nonviolence, as did Gandhi, as a lifelong training. You know, and some of you may have seen uh, videos of some of the training sessions, you know, when people were training for nonviolence in the civil rights movement in the South, right? And they're, you know, they, they're extensive role plays, as well as, of course, in that tradition, very much the nonviolence is very connected to Christian spirituality and, and cultivation of love, right? So the one starts with training in a protected environment. You bring that, you develop the qualities, you learn how to have the qualities be 
more or less strong in a protected environment, then you start bringing it out into daily life. Bring it more and you know, bring mindfulness into washing the dishes, into one's speech and communication. Then you gradually find ways to bring it into more and more in one's daily life all the time, occasionally bringing it also into difficult situations. And there's a kind of a, a gradual step-by-step -step training where you go from where it's easier to develop and where it's more protected to where it's more in the flow of daily life and also not always so easy. You know, so sometimes we have a focus here on how do we bring these qualities into difficult situations, difficult emotions, difficult interpersonal situations, conflicts, and so forth. Right? So there's something like that trajectory. Again, very similar for Dr. King. And we, we cultivate this capacity to see clearly, to be less distracted, to increasingly be non-reactive. At the heart of the Buddha's teaching was the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, which I like to summarize in ordinary English as learning to be responsive rather than being reactive. Learning how to essentially have freedom in the moment to respond with wisdom rather than being driven by habit, impulse, reactivity. That's a sim very simple way of talking about what we're up to. And so part of the training is to develop these beautiful qualities of mindfulness and kindness and wisdom. And part of our training is to see where we get stuck, steer, see where we get caught. I'm very glad that we have both aspects. If we just had looking at how we get stuck, it could be discouraging. And we need, we need to hang out a certain amount of time in these beautiful qualities. But then we run the trap of thinking, oh, I'll just hang out forever in the beautiful qualities, and that's all, that's, I'll live happily ever after. And that was my initial understanding of the, the path of practice. I thought that I would have bliss and understanding and I would achieve it within my first or second year of meditation, and it would just um, continue and get better. And I actually had my first or second retreats were actually like that. I was, you know, I was kind of opened up to the uh, beauty of a silent mind and the blissful body energies opened up, and it's like, wow. So cool, I'll just you know, keep this going, hang out, be enlightened, and see what came next. And so like my next retreat, I looked at fear a lot. And I, kinda, and I got the message <laughs> that it's, it's both, right? And so again, we don't always, I, I like to say, we don't always put that in our promotional literature, right? Come, develop some good qualities, and also see all the ways that you suffer, and look at them carefully. <laughs> kind of grand is that. You know, so in any case, both are there. That's our training. And the, in many ways, the perspective of Dr. King, I think, is very much parallel. There is a training in how to bring 
the qualities of love, especially for him. He saw all of what he was doing socially as the bringing of the love ethic of Jesus into the social sphere. And in his upbringing, he had already seen how that could be the basis for one's personal life, one's interpersonal relations, and so forth. But as I mentioned last time, not until he read Gandhi did he think that it was actually possible to bring this love ethic into larger spheres of life, into the social sphere, into meeting injustice. You know, and I'll come, I'll come back to that. And his view was that, very similar to what we find in Buddhist practice, that the essence of the practice is meeting every circumstance with love and with, we could say, with non-reactivity. He expressed that especially in terms of nonviolence, which really is another version of non-reactivity, that one can encounter something difficult and not react in turn. And so he framed it especially in terms of nonviolence, again, which he very much got from, from Gandhi. He said, in one's action, the means must be as pure as the ends. The end represents the means and process and the ideal in the making. So there was a sense that whatever one did, one had to interrupt the cycles of hatred and of negativity by positivity, which he understood especially in terms of love. This, was, this is one of his classic statements about uh, nonviolence. The ultimate weakness of violence, he said, is that it is a descending spiral, begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. <clears throat> Through violence, you murder the hater but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. For some of you, you can hear an echo of the Buddha's words in the Dhammapada. Do you remember those? Literally, it's non-hate. Hatred only ends with non-hatred. Hatred cannot end hatred. That's often translated as hatred only ends with love. Only love can end hatred. Exact same view. And so I've often interpreted the core of the Buddha's teaching as this teaching of there is something difficult happening, something unpleasant, and there, the, there's a tendency to react to that something negative occurring. And remember this teaching of the two arrows. The first arrow, we are sometimes shot by the arrow of the unpleasant, the difficult, the painful. And the Buddha's teaching is that the conditioned tendency is to react to the first arrow by shooting a second arrow as if that would help. I have bodily pain. I con uh, sort of contort around it or I contract around it. Some, someone says something negative to me, I immediately react back. You know? I have something difficult happens to me, I react by blaming myself or blaming another. He said that's shooting the second arrow. It's the exact same idea. And I've often interpreted that as the heart of the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. 
So can you see these parallels? This is what I'm talking about as the shared heart of the approaches. Now, what's particularly interesting, this is what I want to talk about for the rest of the morning, is that King, following Gandhi, was particularly innovative in bringing what he called the love ethic and what we could call this shared heart of non-reactivity, meeting every moment with um, love, wisdom, skillful action. He brought this, as did Gandhi, to, a, to the sphere of social relationships, which wasn't done in the same way in the classical Buddhist teachings. And I want to frame this in terms of the idea of integrity and say that what uh, the contributions of King and is to really add to our sense of what the essence of our practice is by giving us a clearer meaning of what integrity means. So I want to focus on the theme of integrity for the rest of the morning. And in doing so, I'm particularly inspired by a talk uh, given just a few days ago <clears throat> by my colleague Larry Yang, who talked about the integrity of love, more connecting it with metapractice. But I'll talk about it in some other ways. So we aspire towards lives of integrity. And we could think of integrity as linked with what I was earlier calling seamlessness, the wholeness of our lives. We want to have a sense of our core principles and practices being, to meet, being able to meet every situation. Locked out or something, but there's someone maybe trying to get in, in the back door. So if someone could, just we just need one person to go back. <laughs> thank, but thank you for the motivation. <laughs> Let's see. Let's see what the story is. but something was happening. Maybe it was local spirits were pouring the territory. Okay. Um, so for us, this sense of integrity it can be especially about can I bring my core principles and practices into all the parts of my lives? You know, not just during my meditation sessions. And again, there's a developmental sequence where it actually makes sense to start where we can access it and not try to do it all at once, right? That's, and so everything I'm saying also rests on the understanding that there is development where we don't try to do everything at once. We start and we develop where our own learning edge is. So, but still, we want that quality, we can call it uh, integrity, wholeness, completeness, seamlessness, um, unified life, really. We want, we want those qualities. We don't just want to be really cool and mindful in our meditation session and then go out and, you know, curse at tailgaters. Who are, who are, you know, I remember the first retreat I ever did, I was so peaceful. And then immediately after the retreat, I came home and had a very bad argument with my roommate. Right? So... Uh, and it pointed out to me that, that 
I needed to bring my practice into my relationship with my roommate at the time. So, you know, in, in a Christian context, this is sometimes seen as the criticism of people who would be very pious on Sunday morning and then, as is sometimes said, go out and raise hell the rest of the week and then come back on Sunday and practice forgiveness or something. So we want that sense of wholeness. In the, uh, in the dictionary, I looked up online uh, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Here's the definition of integrity. There are actually three definitions. The first is firm adherence to a code of especially moral or artistic values linked with a kind of incorruptibility. Right? So it's uh, coherence following moral values. Secondly, an unimpaired condition, soundness. And here's the one that's probably most important for us. The quality or state of being complete or undivided. Integrity is about not having a division. Here I'm spiritual. Here I'm not. Right? Here I bring my practice. Here I don't. Right? And so very challenging. You know, uh, What does integrity mean in our times? What does the integrity of our practice mean in these times? And in the traditional approach, this was particularly framed by the uh, Noble Eightfold Path which still we have a lot to learn from. Because often we, in this culture, we focus especially on meditation. And we don't necessarily focus on the integrity of the practice in all the parts of our lives. And so traditionally, integrity meant to follow these three aspects, these three main aspects of the Eightfold Path, which were first, cultivating wisdom and clear seeing. Secondly, living ethically. And thirdly, developing in meditation. So the first two, the wisdom part of the Eightfold Path, had to do with uh, right view, or what I like to call mature view, the word that's translated as right. I've, I make this comment from time to time, is sama, which is closer in meaning to words like summary, coming from an Indo-European language. And the meaning is more that of realized or developed or mature rather than right or wrong. Right? And again, I'm, again, that was a Victorian era translation, and <clears throat> many of us don't like it. So you see on the wheel up near the gate, they don't use it. They say wise view rather than right view. Wise is not as close to the literal meaning, but it, it gets at it a little bit better. So I, I like to use developed or mature or realized view view way of seeing things. The second is having mature intentions, developed intentions. And then for the ethical part of this, of the Eightfold Path, the first area is speech practice, speech and communication. The second area is livelihood. And the third area is really the rest of the ethical guidelines, sometimes summarized as mature or wise wise action. And then the meditation part of the Eightfold Path has to do with skillful effort and mindfulness and concentration. The key is that all of them have to be developed and all of them have to be in relationship with each other. And this can give some perspectives about why 
even though there's some wonderful aspects about the popularization of mindfulness, there's some problematic aspects. Mindfulness is essentially um, taken out of that context of the Eightfold Path often. We just develop mindfulness, and there might be nothing about ethics. Right? That can be a problem. And so the popularization of mindfulness doesn't necessarily have the connection with these other qualities. And that can be a problem. You know? Historically, for example, in the first half of the 20th century in Japan, meditation was used for the purposes of supporting Japanese fascism, even in the training for soldiers, you know, as they committed atrocities. Right? I've heard apologies from Japanese Zen teachers about that 50 years later. Right? Mindfulness can be very well developed to help one rob a bank. Really be present with this if it's disconnected <coughs> from the other parts. Does that make sense? That's an important issue in our, in our times. And so after, um, for King, again, after reading Gandhi, he wanted to bring the uh, principles of his spirituality into the larger world. In Buddhist tradition, one didn't necessarily do this. Most of the training was monastic. And so there, wasn't, there also wasn't a sense of being a citizen of a country who could actually have some active uh, influence on the larger society. You know? There have been democracies at different times in the world, but generally speaking, most of the <clears throat> world of Buddhist practice hasn't involved a way <clears throat> of actively approaching the social dimension. So in many ways, we don't have any teachings and practices about that, or very few. We have some, but they're very minimal. <clears throat> this, is what <clears throat> this is what Gary Snyder said about this. <clears throat> the, the poet and <clears throat> an act, ecological activist especially. Historically, Buddhist philosophers have failed to analyze out the, de the degree to which ignorance and suffering are caused or encouraged by social factors, considering fear and desire to be a great given facts of the human condition. Institutional Buddhism has been conspicuously ready to accept or ignore the inequalities and tyrannies of whatever political system it found itself under, and the sense of practice was more limited to meditation and what one does in one's especially monastic community. Again, we don't have resources for the social. So Gary Snyder says, the mercy of the West has been social revolution. The mercy of the East has been individual insight into the basic self-void. We need both. Right? So really parallel thought to really the basic idea of the talk today. And so for them, integrity meant to bring the practice out into the larger world for King, for Gandhi. And it's, um, it's challenging. You know, we can ask. You know, again, we have the sense of citizenship. And I remember Sylvia once did a series on citizenship as spiritual practice. Right? So we, we're in a different place than was the case in almost all Buddhist 
training situations in the past. You know, and again, how do we bring this out? How do we bring this out? I sometimes ask the question, how do we live a life of integrity given our world? <clears throat> and sometimes it's helpful to reflect back. How would I have lived you know, as a white person under slavery? What would a life of integrity have meant? What would a life of integrity have meant as a white person in the South in the 1940s or 50s or 1920s? Do you ever think about these kind of questions? What would I have done as a non-Jewish German under the Nazis? You know, pretty extreme situation, a little more extreme than the others. What does a life of integrity mean? And there's a, there's a beautiful way of framing this that I learned from Cornell West, which comes from the great African-American scholar and activist, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. How many people know some about his life? Yeah. W.E.B. Du Bois uh, lived a very long life. He died just, I think, uh, the day before <clears throat> the march on Washington in 1963 when King gave his I Have a Dream speech. He died, I think, at age 95. And he... <clears throat> was the uh, co-founder of the NAACP in 1909. Towards the end of his life, in 1957, at the age of 89, <clears throat> he, <clears throat> he decided to write three novels. Age of 89, he was talking with friends, including... Um, uh, Paul Robeson, one of his good friends, and he said he wanted to write love letters to the younger generation. He said, we've got to prepare the younger generation to be spiritually fortified, intellectually sophisticated, morally fearful, but also humble. And so he wrote these three novels. And in the first novel, he talked about wrestling with four questions. And I want to give those, because they're an expression of the questions about what integrity means. And he said, here are the four questions. How does integrity face oppression? How does integrity face oppression? What does honesty do in the face of deception? What does decency do in the face of insult? And how does virtue meet brute force? I think they're still relevant. But they're hard, aren't they? They're like uh, Zen koans for our times. How does integrity face oppression? What does honesty do in the face of deception? What does decency do in the face of insult? How does virtue meet brute force? And please, what's the name of the, the novel? The novel is called The Ordeal of Monsart, the first one. That's where this comes from. <laughs> After today, it will rise high on the Amazon list. 
Right. We will see. Um, and so I think we can interpret Dr. King's life as his own way of answering those kind of questions, right? What does integrity mean? And how does one bring a coherent, unified life of integrity to difficult social situations? Again, everyone being imperfect. Dr. King was highly imperfect. We know some of his imperfections quite well in terms particularly of his infidelities, right? We know that. <clears throat> but there is also this struggling to live a life of integrity and live a life of wholeness. Wholeness is a word for integrity I didn't bring in earlier. How can all the parts of our lives be whole? And these are not easy. I mean, I can feel myself and maybe you sitting there saying, these are great questions, and whoa. <laughs> Does anyone go to whoa? Raise your hand. How many went to woe? Yeah, I think. Uh, but they're 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 important. That means that there's something there. There's something there, and we don't know what will happen in the next few years. My sense is that we will be challenged to live lives of integrity, perhaps like we've never been challenged. We don't know, but it's highly possible, even likely. Mm -hmm. I wanted to say a little bit about the last part of Dr. King's life and then play a recording from him because in the latter part of his life, he thought that his integrity was even further challenged. You know, he had, you know, in some sense, it was very natural to respond through the civil rights movement, but as he kept going, he also was challenged in terms of the war in Vietnam and in terms of having a broader message than he had had earlier, where there was a more narrow focus on civil rights, not narrow in any real sense, but he wasn't talking about everything. He, and we know from his journals and writings that he was actually very interested in multiple forms of injustice, not just around around uh, racial injustice. And so towards the middle 60s and later, as the Vietnam War expanded, he became very anguished. Should I speak about this? What about integrity? Most of his advisors were saying, just stay with civil rights, Dr. King. And he became anguished about this and wasn't sure what to do. It was his way of grappling with this question of integrity. You know, even though arguably he already had a lot of integrity, but he was anguished about this. And he began to speak up and was heavily criticized. At the time of his death, he was seen unfavorably by most of the American population and even by a very large percentage of the African-American population, in large part because he spoke up on Vietnam. New York Times editorials condemned him. You know? He was seen extremely negatively. So I wanted to, in that context, play a rather famous speech of his that some of you know, which is the speech that he gave on April 4th, 1967. This is really the part of the speech related to integrity. And this is the speech that he gave on April 4th, 1967, one year to the day before he was killed at the Riverside Church in New York City. 
in this talk, he came out most fully and gave his views on Vietnam. I'll play the beginning of the speech. I come to this magnificent house of worship tonight because my conscience leaves me no other choice. I join you in this meeting because I'm in deepest agreement with the aims and work of the organization which has brought us together, clergy and laymen concerned about Vietnam. The recent statements of your executive committee are the sentiments of my own heart, and I found myself in full accord when I read its opening lines. A time comes when silence is betrayal, and that time has come for us in relation to Vietnam. The truth of these words is beyond doubt, but the mission to which they call us is a most difficult one. Even when pressed by the demands of inner truth, men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy, especially in time of war nor does the human spirit move without great difficulty against all the apathy of conformist thought within one's own bosom and in the surrounding world. Moreover, when the issues at hand seem as perplexing as they often do in the case of this dreadful conflict, we are always on the verge of being mesmerized by uncertainty. But we must move on. And some of us who have already begun to break the silence of the night have found that the calling to speak is often a vocation of agony. But we must speak. We must speak with all the humility that is appropriate to our limited vision, but we must speak. And we must rejoice as well, for surely this is the first time in our nation's history that a significant number of its religious leaders have chosen to move beyond the prophesying of smooth patriotism to the high grounds of a firm descent based upon the mandates of conscience and the reading of history. <clears throat> Perhaps a new spirit is rising among us. <clears throat> if it is, let us trace its movements and pray that our own inner being may be sensitive to its guidance. For we are deeply in need of a new way beyond the darkness that seems so close around us. Over the past two years, as I have moved to break the betrayal of my own silences and to speak from the burnings of my own heart, as I have called for radical departures from the destruction of Vietnam, many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my path. 
At the heart of their concerns, this query has often loomed large and loud. Why are you speaking about the war, Dr. King? Why are you joining the voices of dissent? Peace and civil rights don't mix, they say. Aren't you hurting the cause of your people, they ask. And when I hear them, though I often understand the source of their concern, I'm nevertheless greatly saddened, for such questions mean that the inquirers have not really known me, my commitment or my calling. Indeed, their questions suggest that they do not know the world in which they live. In the light of such tragic misunderstanding, I deem it of signal importance to try to state clearly, and I trust concisely, why I believe that the path from Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, a church in Montgomery, Alabama, where I began my pastorate, leads clearly to this sanctuary tonight. I come to this platform tonight to make a passionate plea to my beloved nation. And um, thank you, Dr. King. And you can hear that uh, calling of integrity, right? the grappling, the, again, as a public figure, very challenging. How does he have a life of wholeness, a life of integrity? And what I want to suggest is that that question is really a large one for our times. How do I live with integrity? And so it's really pointing to the centrality of wholeness for our practice and also the challenges. This isn't easy. What do I do? What's my understanding? What does integrity mean in my personal life, in my direct relationships? What does it mean in terms of a larger social world? Again, it can be helpful sometimes to have to reflect back on previous situations where we may have a lot of moral clarity and say, what would I have done in those situations, such as ones I named? And how does our practice help us? I mean, partly our practice helps us by being able to listen very deeply for what's there. You know. And there's the uh, line, which I like very much, from Howard Thurman, where he says, don't ask what the world needs, but ask what makes you come alive. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. So it's not so much that one is asked to do some rote uh, action or to follow some common direction, but it's really, integrity is about listening very deeply to oneself, right? That's really at the heart of it. It's about listening carefully and seeing what your own integrity calls for, seeing what my own integrity calls for. You know, I think of Gandhi once who, at one point in the independence struggle, he didn't know what to do. It was about 1930. And so he said, I don't know what to do. And he said, I'm just going to listen and listen for the, the voice that tells me what to do. 
and he just sat on the veranda of his house like for weeks. And people were criticizing him and saying, hey, you're Gandhi, you're supposed to know. He said, I'm going to just sit here. And he just sat on the veranda. He didn't know what to do. You know? And elsewhere in the independence movement, people were saying, you know, nothing's happening. You know? And they were questioning nonviolence. And some people were offering violence as a way to actually get something, to attack the British and so forth. And after six weeks, Gandhi said, I think I heard a voice. I heard something giving me direction. And he said, we're going to um, march to the ocean. We're going to take the salt from the ocean, engage in a process whereby we develop salt. Strangely, at that time, the British held a monopoly on salt. They, one could not actually make salt from the ocean or any other way because the British had the monopoly. <laughs> Crazy, right? And so he said, we're going to march to the sea and we're going to make salt in defiance of the British colonial laws. He did so. He started with, I think, 250 people. maybe fewer, and when they, um, they marched 250 miles, when they got to the ocean, they had 15,000 people. And they started a round of civil disobedience that historians see as pivotal in the independence movement. It came out of listening deeply, listening in the silence. So that's really, I think, what's at the heart of integrity, is that deep listening. <laughs> And our practice gives us ways to do that because we have ways to clear out the distraction, clear out the chatter, and listen deeply. So I think I'll just end with that. And that the question is, how can I live a life of integrity in our times? That's the question I'm centering this talk and inquiry around. At this point, open it up to anyone who'd like to speak or ask a question. We have a microphone to, to use. Last week you mentioned a path from Thoreau to Gandhi yeah. to King. Could you say a little more about the Thoreau to Gandhi piece? Oh, um, my understanding, you know, uh, well, to back up, King says, and I read a quote last time, prior to reading Gandhi, I had no sense of how the love ethic of Jesus could be brought to the relationships of groups in society and to larger conflicts in society. And then we look back and we see that Gandhi was in large part inspired by Henry David Thoreau, off there in 1845 in Massachusetts, uh, I think, if I remember correctly, refusing to pay his poll tax, which would support the, uh, the Mexican, so what's now called the Mexican-American War, right? The, kind of the invasion of Mexico. And that's where I think um, you know, that particular war, is the, if I remember my history correctly, is the basis for us being here as part of the United States, right? Interesting history, but, but Thoreau, 
thought that it was an unjust war, and he refused to pay his poll tax. And he probably he wrote an essay called Civil Disobedience, which you can find probably easily online. That was picked up by Gandhi, and then Gandhi was picked up by King. So there's that interesting, powerful history of uh, transmission of ideas across continents, which took a little bit longer than it does with the internet. but that's, that's the history, yeah. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? Questions, reflections on integrity, please. Let's wait for the microphone. Yeah. I know that you also work with communication. Yeah. And I'm struck by uh, King's phrase, break the betrayal of my own silence. Yeah. And um, as a child of the 60s, I remember the strong mandate to really step out and step up. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you want to um, say anything about the relationship between how one might do break that betrayal of yeah. come forth and nonviolent communication. Yeah, yeah. So interesting question. Uh, I think of um, speech practice, and you know, for those who don't know, I, I teach retreats with these days with Oren Sofer, in which we uh, have seven-day retreats on developing skillful speech practice, which we then try to support in daily life. I think I have a, actually have a flyer for our, our next retreat out on the table, which isn't until later in the year. But it's a very crucial practice for having the integrity of our practice be there in our everyday lives in this culture. And, uh, you know, because again, for a lot of us, we can find a certain relaxation, peace in doing meditation 20 minutes, 30 minutes a day. But how do you then extend it into the five or 10 hours a day you're talking, which includes electronic communication? And so we have, you know, I have felt really called to develop to help develop the speech practice so it's more robust. And so we actually integrate what we get from the Buddha with what we get from a nonviolent communication developed by Marshall Rosenberg, and then some of our own innovations to develop what we call relational awareness practices. So you can bring mindfulness into relational context as well. So that, to me, helps. It, it is partly a question of how we have uh, you know, how we can have more integrity. And to some extent, it means clarifying practices, how we, you know, how we have a sense of live practice in these other domains. In this case, just everyday, ordinary communication. And so I think the, uh, that communication training also provides a very strong basis for then communicating in a larger social sphere and really asking, how might I communicate? You heard Dr. King. He was very humble in certain ways, you know? And I've, you know, both uh, respect and honor people who are in the more conventional social justice movements for identifying injustice. But often, as I've sometimes said, there's a model of polarized groups, self-righteousness, and speech and communication, which is highly demonizing and judgmental of the opponent. 
And I think what we get from Dr. King's example is that all of that communication on that larger social level in his approach has to come, has to be continuous with what he called the love ethic. How do you have communication? And this is where I like to talk about uh, uh, the, the fact that uh, loving communication can still be very strong, identify injustice. I, I, like, I, I, I think about it in terms of the analogy of tough love. So I've been trying to explore the nature of tough meta. <laughs> because we, you know, our communication isn't just about being nicey-nice, right? And, and how do you keep these values? This is a very challenging question. How do you keep the values of wisdom, compassion, kindness when you're saying something difficult, whether interpersonally or in a larger social sphere? So that's, I make those kind of connections. And the aspiration is to have you know, communication, this is not okay, this is not right, this is unjust. How does that get expressed in a way which, I, again, I think is different from a prevailing model in social injustice, where one, where, which comes especially through anger, polarization, demonization, which has its limits. And I think in our times, the limits of that approach will be much more apparent. And I think there's a call for you know, another approach, which I think is more continuous with this integration of the inner practices we get, especially from Buddhist practice, and this uh, nonviolent action which we get from Gandhi and King, which also needs you know, further development in many ways. So I think it's, it's an interesting question. So you can, you know, and you can study it this weekend. Study the different kinds of communication that you hear. You know, you'll hear the whole range. You'll hear communication which is very accurate about injustice, but not particularly kind or empathic or interested in uh, you know, the interest of both Buddhist practice and what we get from King is to um, actually have universal compassion. He tried to have empathy, King did, with his opponents, right? As did Gandhi. Gandhi said, I want to have a movement that creates a society where the British and I can be friends in the long run. King talked a lot about how, essentially, how his opponents, particularly poor whites, were manipulated. You know, like the Bob Dylan song, Only a Pawn in Their Game. Some of you may know. Great question, thank you. Shows the integrity, meaning the wholeness of our practice, because we we can practice with difficult situations in our own lives with our spouse, partner, coworker, and it's training for talking to the government. Maybe more difficult. <laughs> Others, please. Please. Thank you. I like what you. I liked your question that you posed. Um, what would a white person do if they were living in the twenties, and the thirties, and the forties? Yeah. Right. Yeah, and a couple of things come to mind. Um, one is that um, in the last several years, there were um, 
maybe 129 unarmed black men shot by the police. Right. And people were upset. Yeah. And then there was an, a lion in Africa that was killed at a reserve, and there was international outrage. Right. Is that there seems to be that just disconnect. What do people in this country, how much does it take to get uh, people motivated or develop that passion to understand right. um, the injustice and that the injustice is real. Yeah. It's not something that uh, one group is making up. Yeah. yeah, I also like the point that you t mentioned that Dr. King said uh, the ends justifying the means and why, why uh, nonviolence had to be the method if we are going to live together in a beloved right. community. That's right. Um, because uh, he, he, he was facing tremendous pressure from uh, other factions. Like we hear the idea that there are two Americans, one black, one white. But at that time, there was two black Americas, one that wanted to go nonviolent with Dr. King and a, a great segment that wanted to follow Malcolm X or other uh, militants. So he had his work cut out for him. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's a lot there in what you say. And um, yeah, so one way, one way to respond, is still on? One way to respond is actually to stand um, um, up, right? Stand up. You probably, we can look back and find exemplars of uh, people who were not part of oppressed groups who spoke up. You know, whatever the group, in this case, African-Americans who spoke up in those years. Not so many, but they exist. One can study the, their lives and what would it mean to stand up now, right, to continue to stand up. And again, I think you point to sort of the, uh, you know, what makes the headlines as significant or what strikes people as significant. It's very, you know, your example is very, uh, you know, hear that and it's, uh, the sadness, right? That that it exists like that, right? So people can um, develop that action based on empathy, and actually tuning in, you know, and not taking it for granted and thinking. That question of the uh, means justifying the ends, right? So King was very strong on that. And I think he also grew, you know, what, what I was referring to near the end of the talk. Uh, met, right? I yeah. think in, uh, I think 19, either 63 or 64, uh, Malcolm X was killed in, what year was that? Was it 65? I'm not sure. I think 1965. And I think maybe they met in 64. And they actually um, had a fair amount of connection. And a lot of people have uh, made the case that at the end of each of their lives, they were moving closer together. Hmm. You can definitely see it. Malcolm X at his trip to Mecca and seeing the uh, vast array of people of different background had a profound effect. And it really actually made him more think of the kind of the, what you know, Jesse Jackson called the rainbow mm -hmm. approach. And then Dr. King, at the end of his life, focused much more, as in the focus on Vietnam, on um, institutions, 
right? And had a much broader vision. He focused, you know, in the last part of his life, he said that the very interesting parallels the Buddhist emphasis on the three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion. Dr. King at the end of his life said the three forces which are at the heart of injustice are first poverty, and then racism, and then militarism. Mm -hmm. right? And he focused on those three. Right, and that was a much broader vision. So there's a way in which they came together. Yeah. One could make that case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the one other thing is I, I realize that a lot of times people just don't know what to do. That's right. Yeah, yeah. and um, well, there, uh, there's a lot of social movements, but maybe we're not motivated enough to get to the social movements, but some simple things. For example, I remember a, talking to a coworker and I was really running another coworker down yeah. and the person I was talking to just turned around and walked away from me. Yeah. And I realized that, wow, I've got this gossip problem. <laughs> you know, uh, one thing that people can do is when you hear uh, off-color jokes, you don't have to laugh at them and you may even confront the person and say, that's I right. think that's inappropriate. Just something that simple. Right. Like uh, I've heard the phrase that once we learn to stand up for someone else, we'll learn to stand up for ourselves. Yeah, right. So, so that's, uh, I think, uh, could be something helpful we do here maybe at some point, like identify simple actions. But it's basically, you know, it's not taking injustice or lack of empathy for granted, right? It's saying this is not okay, and it, and it can get one, you know, it's like having that discussion with your favorite aunt over the holidays who has certain views and engaging her with all the skills of skillful communication, but not just letting it slide necessarily, or, you know, responding to, you know, daily ordinary injustice, right? So that's, I think, what you're pointing to is that's part of the life of integrity that we're pointing to. Mm -hmm. And can, can so... It, it could be something like maybe I respond in one way a day or something. Or you just ask yourself so something like that. How can I respond in a small way? Right. We're, thank you so much. We're, we're at time. And uh, let's just sit quietly. I love about our practice and about this whole notion of integrity and wholeness is that this isn't just about doing difficult things in the larger social realm. It's about the wholeness of our lives and the way that all of this is continuous. So see where your own edge of learning is. Maybe it's being with difficult conversations just with your people close to you. And as one practices there, it gets transferred. You learn things and you say, oh, okay. I've done, I've done three months of working on my own interpersonal interactions. Now I'm ready to speak to the government. Now I'm ready to write my letter to the newspaper. Right? Now I'm ready to speak up with my favorite aunt. Right? Okay. We get the, we get the training and then we go into the, these other areas. So um, again, it's, uh, it, the practice goes all the way from working with our own thoughts all the way to the larger, larger world. And it's beautiful that way. And so my invitation right now is just to see where you're called. See what did anything uh, spark you or what sparked you from the morning? Intentions come out of the morning.
And we close by the traditional Buddhist uh, practice that we typically do at the end. That's often done a lot of sessions at the end of remembering that we meet, we do our own practices um, very much for ourselves, very much for those in our lives, but also for the horizon is that of all beings. Here be of benefit to all beings without exception. Always remembering that that includes us. I am part of all beings. Thank you, and see you in two weeks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.